Amen. All right, church, how are we doing this morning? All doing all right? Anybody a little bit more uh, encouraged, built up than when you rolled out of bed this morning? You know, that's why we do church, right? It's to encourage each other and build each other up in faith. And, you know, when the family comes together, there's a lot of amazing things that, uh, that happen. Speaking of family, uh, so my name is Chris Pletcher. For those of you guys that I don't know yet, uh, I'm actually our family's pastor here at Antioch. And uh, get to, to preach this morning, and I'm just so excited. Um, it's been a fun day already, but I'm really excited for what I believe the Lord has for each and every one of you today. Um, and so I want to introduce you to my family real quick, if that's okay. So this is my uh, amazing wife, Arlena, and um, we do not run a daycare. Those are all of our children. Um, Caleb on the far left, he's our four-year-old, and uh, he loves fire trucks. He literally just turned four two weekends ago. Um, in the middle, that's Hudson and Levi, our miracle story, identical twin little baby boys. They just turned two this summer. And then little Holland is on the far right. Uh, she was just born two months ago. So, um, man, God has blessed us, obviously, abundantly. And uh, loved, we love being a family. We love, we love trying to figure out how to raise a healthy family in God's kingdom and be a part of the family of God in that process. And so uh, along those lines, I got a couple of quick announcements. If you are... Uh, a family or you are a uh, young adult, basically post-college, and you're in that uh, season of life, we have a newcomer's lunch today right after this service. It's going to be in the big room across the foyer. Jason's Deli's bringing some sandwiches. It is free. If you are a family or young adult and you're new to Antioch, say, in the last three to four months, and you're just kind of wanting to get to know some people, get a little bit more connected, you are invited, okay? Lunch is provided. Come hang out. Our family and young adult life group leaders are going to be there. A couple of our pastoral staff are going to be there. And we just want to share a meal. It's going to be 30, 40 minutes. We're just going to hang out, eat lunch, and, and get to know you. So come hang out with us. Uh, kind of uh, along those lines, if you are a visiting family, or that's you and you've been here, you're new in the last three months, who wants this book? I got one for you right here. Just raise a hand. Come on, sir, right there. Tyler, take, take this. In. Come on. Oh, all right, young adults, you're a visiting young adult. Nice, come on. Hey, here you go, man. Welcome to Antioch, all right. Um, and college students, we don't want to leave you guys out. So who wants this? College, come on, come get it, girl, let's go. Right here, colorful shirt, looking good. All right, so, so the, the book that we just passed out uh, is the inspiration to the, the sermon series we've been doing here for the last six weeks called Passion and Purpose, okay? That's the title of this book, uh, Jimmy Seibert who uh, planted the original Antioch Community Church 30 years ago with his wife. He wrote this book. As Tyler mentioned, we are a part of a network of churches, a family of churches, 100 churches around the world. And it's really just kind of a, a, a book about the church, not just Antioch. It's, it is a little bit of a biography of, of what God has done in Antioch over the years, but it's just a book about the church and about the people of God and what God does when people obey the scriptures and dig in with one another and, and live on mission, all right? Um, and it's a powerful read. They're, they're actually on sale in the foyer. If you want to snag one, there's several more out there today. Uh, one last quick announcement. Any married couples in the room? Married couples. All right, so I get to run. We have like no married people over here. All right, get a date. There you go. What's up, DeFreeze? So marriage is good, and um, it's also challenging. And so um, we just feel like the season for some, some like investment in our marriages is here. So cultivate marriage equipping starts next Sunday, all right? Because marriage is like a garden, all right? It needs some water. It needs some sunshine. You got to pull up the weeds, all right? You got to spend time 
to grow a healthy garden. It's not going to happen and be pretty, right? It takes work. So join us. It's every other Sunday starting next Sunday during the 9 a.m. service. So child care is taken care of, all right? We'll take care of your kiddos. Um, and you can register online, antiochcs.org slash cultivate. Uh, we have about 15 couples already signed up. We got room for about 15 more. So you should jump in and join us. It's going to be life-changing. All right. I heard that our speaker really needs some prayer today, so I'm going to invite you to pray with me. Just extend your hand, and I'm serious. So, um, so let's just pray as we go into the message. Jesus, prepare our hearts for your word. Lord, I just uh, submit myself to you, and I pray that you would speak through your word, and you would speak through your Holy Spirit, and you'd build us up today in faith. Lord, you'd increase our faith, that you would do something powerful in us this morning, that we'd never be the same. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right, so uh, have you ever been persuaded of something that you previously did not believe? Like uh, somebody showed you some new evidence maybe, and you were convinced to change your mind about something based on some new evidence? Well, about six months ago, one of our staff members here at Antioch came to me with this ridiculous accusation that I was certain was false, all right? She claimed that I regularly rolled or pushed my sleeves up above my elbows, okay? I, now, I'm not as fashionable as some of you uber cool hipster guys, you know, with your skinny jeans, the plaid shirts, the dark rim glasses. Like, I'm not that cool, but I know that this does not look that cool, you know? And so I was certain she was wrong. I, I was certain she was wrong, and so I made her a wager, all right? I said, if you can catch me three times, this is a true story, three times in the next month with my sleeves rolled up above my elbows, I will pay you $100, all right? <laughs> Tyler, do you know about this? Hey, come on staff at Antioch, all right? It's fun things. So, uh, so a few days later, we're sitting in a meeting together, real important meeting, you know, and I'm you know, I've got my head, I'm thinking about something, and I kind of lean back in my chair, and I put my hands behind my head like this, and I'm thinking, and I see this smirk come on her face. She goes, ha, I got you. That's one. And I was like, what? Oh, no way. You know, I said, I still don't believe you. But like a week later, I did it again. And needless to say, I lost this wager badly, okay? And if you guys know Madeline Jones, she's on our college staff. She's $100 richer now, okay? So... Get her to take you out to lunch or something. But I had been convinced of a reality that I previously denied was impossible based on evidence. I had been persuaded of the truth, guys, and I, I'm a believer. I just, I do it, you know? Have you ever had an experience like that? Has, have you ever been, like, changed your mind about something? Somebody presented some, some new evidence? You know, I, I tell this goofy story just to illustrate a really simple point that uh, belief, if you're going to believe in something, you actually have to be convinced of it. Belief or faith is simply the conviction that something is true. I did not believe that I rolled my sleeves above my elbows. But then I, I became a believer. I was convinced. And I changed my mind. And you know, it's interesting because that's actually how the Bible defines faith, right? You guys are familiar, I know, I'm sure a lot of you are, with Hebrews 11, verse 1, says that, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So as we continue our series on passion and purpose, we cannot 
skip over this, this theme that just seemed to anchor everything that Jesus did in the scriptures. Faith. Who wants to guess what the most frequently occurring New Testament word is other than Jesus, God, and Lord? It's faith. Or the verb form of the noun faith is believe. Guys, over 518 times the word faith or believe is found in the New Testament. For a frame of reference, the word love is only found 235 times. Prayer is only found 150 times. So we know that prayer and love are near and dear to the heart of God, but I share this with you to, to, to show that faith and belief is the central theme of the New Testament, is whether or not we will be convinced that Jesus is who he said he is. As I was digging into this word faith, the Lord kind of opened my eyes to some new perspective. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar, but there's some amazing websites online that make it easy for you to kind of dig a little deeper. And so the root word for faith or believe is the Greek word pytho, which just means to be persuaded or convinced. This is why Hebrews defines faith as the evidence, some translations, the evidence of things hoped for. Because if you're going to be convinced of something, what do you need? You need evidence, right? I didn't believe that I pushed my sleeves up above my elbows until I was presented irrefutable evidence to the contrary. Now I'm a believer. I didn't believe that Lupus Coffee had the best espresso in town until I went there and sipped on that goodness myself, and I'm a believer. Lupus, who knew? Amazing. If you work somewhere else, I love you. Bless you. I'll come drink coffee with you too. It's fine. But faith, here's the point, guys. Faith is not blind. I don't know where we got that concept from. It's not biblical. Faith is not even a feeling. Faith is a conviction, guys. Faith is a conviction, and it's a conviction based on evidence. Now, the tricky thing for us as believers is that most of our evidence is unseen, right? Hebrews 11.1. 1. Unseen, not non-existent. The evidence is actually all around us, that when we align our lives with God and his word, things go a lot better than we distance ourselves from God and his purposes. Faith, the evidence is all around. Now, here's why this is important. So if you're taking notes and you want to draw some arrows in your, in your journal, okay? Evidence, write the word evidence and then draw an arrow to belief because evidence creates belief or faith. And then belief leads to action. So evidence leads to beliefs, and beliefs actually produce actions. That's why I think the writer of the scripture says that faith without action is, is actually dead. Because if you're not doing anything about your faith, then you're probably just not convinced yet. If you're not doing anything about your faith, you're probably just not convinced yet. So let me give you another silly example of how evidence leads to belief, leads to action, okay? If I don't eat food, I become uncomfortable and irritable, all right? Ask my wife. If I'm like getting angry or frustrated, she's just like, have a Snickers, you know? So, <laughs> so that is evidence. Wow, if I don't eat, I get really hungry. It's like measurable evidence, right? And so that evidence creates a belief. That belief in my life is eating three meals a day is a necessary function for human life and growth and happiness. And so the action that that belief produces is what? I make time to eat food every day, right? 
I mean, how many guys like just didn't eat because you're like, man, I'm just so busy, you know, I just couldn't make 14 seconds to like down a granola, right? We make time because we know that if we don't eat, we're, gonna, we're not going to be very happy. And so evidence leads to beliefs, beliefs lead to action. So is there evidence, church, that Jesus walked on the earth, that he spoke about the kingdom of God, that he miraculously healed people? Is there evidence? Yes. It's called your Bible. Do you guys know that this is actually a historical piece of literature? It is a historical document that stands up against the greatest tests of historical scrutiny. Did you guys know this? This this actually has been shown to be more substantiated as a historical document than most of what we probably read in our history books growing up. I want you to look at this graphic here up on on the screen. Okay, here's a a list of several works of uh, antiquity, ancient literature, and you'll see the date that they were written. The earliest copy we have, right, because they were writing on papyrus, like pieces of parchment, and then the time between that original and the copies, and then how many, this is the important, how many copies we have of that document. Because the more copies you have of the the, the document, the more it can be corroborated, the evidence can, and you can establish accuracy, right? So look, I mean, these ancient words, Julius Caesar's life, we got 10 pieces of parchment. And like we study it in our textbooks, like it's irrefutable fact, you know? But I just want you to look at the bottom two here. So other than the New Testament, the, the work of antiquity with the greatest number of copies was Homer's Iliad, which was actually the Bible to the ancient Greeks. This is where they got their beliefs, their history, and their theology. And they have 643. I'm going to up this and give them more credit because I read in some places that it's up to 2,000 pieces of parchment for Homer's Iliad. Okay, so let's just say it's 2,000. The New Testament has 5,600, over 5,600 pieces of parchment where they've been able to corroborate the stories about Jesus. And look, they were all written within 100 years of Jesus being alive. What's the point? This is a historical document that the greatest tests of historical scrutiny actually show as 99.5% historically accurate. Isn't that unbelievable? So yes, we have a lot of unseen evidence, but I submit to you, church, that we have a lot of concrete evidence too. So, So now that I've convinced you that this book in my hand is one of the most historically accurate documents that we have, are you interested to hear what it says about faith? Are you interested to hear the stories in the Gospels and what Jesus has to say about faith for us this morning? I just want to read you a quick overview, and then we're going to dive into a couple together, all right? According to the accounts of Jesus and his life in the Gospels, faith can heal a suffering paralytic without Jesus even entering the house. Faith can command the winds and the water so that the storms will cease in a moment. Faith can heal your paralyzed friend because you were bold enough to interrupt Jesus' sermon, cut a hole in a stranger's roof, and lower him down into the house. Faith can relieve the suffering of a disease that has stumped doctors and wrecked your body for 12 years. Faith can open the eyes of blind people and restore their sight, cleanse 10 lepers at one time, tell demons to shut up and back off, and throw a mountain into the sea. Church, should we, get, should we get some understanding of this faith thing? Should we figure this out? It is the central idea of the New Testament. All throughout the life and ministry of Jesus, 
he continually applauded people for their great faith. And most of the miracles that we see throughout the scriptures, he himself attributes to the bold conviction of people coming toward him for a miracle. I want us to dig into a story, one of these stories about a man who marveled Jesus with his great faith. Hey, do you want that to be said about you? That you marveled Jesus with your faith? Come on, church, this is a big, important thing for us. I want you to flip to Matthew chapter 8. Okay, flip to Matthew chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. It's going to be up on the screen behind us. But because this is a work of literature and it is a document, I would encourage and submit to you that holding this thing in your hands and flipping it through the pages is going to 10 times out of 10 be more powerful to you than word searching on your Bible app. The Bible app's a great, powerful tool, but this is a book. It was written by people. It's a historical document, and it's powerful. Matthew chapter 8. Just so you know, guys, I have the Bible app. I use it all the time. But don't lose your connection to the book. All right. Verse 5, I want you to check this. A guy who marveled Jesus with his faith. It says, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, Jesus said, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to another, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. Okay, so he, Jesus hears this. It blows him away. It shocks him. And he turns and he looks at the crowd of people, mostly Jews, around him, and he says this, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Pretty intense kind of indictment on the people of Israel. I'm going to get back to it in a second. But then he turns back to the centurion. And he says this, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. Let it be done for you as you have believed. Let's unpack this together. The centurion was a professional officer of the Roman army. Some of you guys are familiar with this. But the, he would have commanded a group of soldiers, but more importantly, he would have had a general that was in authority over him. And his revelation of the authority, the submission and the authority paradigm that he lived in was a key to this miracle that he's about to witness, okay? He tells Jesus, I mean, Jesus says to him, I'll come to your house and do it. And he goes, no, no, Lord, I'm not worthy. Just say the word. Just say the word and he'll be healed. And his reasoning is, I too am a man under authority. Okay, I want to say something real quick. Okay, I love this song. When you walk into the room, everything changes, right? I love it. But guys, Jesus doesn't even need to be in the house. He doesn't. He heals this guy with a word. He's not even in the neighborhood. 
Okay, so, but the key was he understood the authority. And so the, the centurion said, I too, watch this. He doesn't first say, I'm a, I too am a man in authority. He first said, I too am a man under authority. And I have soldiers under me. And I say the word, he's, he, he gets it. So look, I have a general that tells me what to do. And when he says it, I do it. And then I have soldiers that are under me. And when I tell them what to do, they do it. And he's recognizing, guys, here's the key here. He's recognizing that the only reason that Jesus walks in spiritual authority is because he's spiritually submitted. You cannot walk in authority if you are not submitted to your authority. And this was a key to this miracle. This great faith understands that true authority is actually rooted in submission. And he says, with no one in Israel have I found such great faith. This was an amazing compliment for this centurion. It was also an indictment on the people of Israel. That a godless general of a heathen empire had a greater revelation of submission and authority than the chosen people of God. And so he said that thing about the gnashing of teeth. He goes, there are godless people all over the world who get this more than my chosen ones because they've missed the submission to me from which all authority flows from. Are you with me? And then he says, let it be done to you as you have believed. Church, can we let this challenge us today? Can we let this phrase challenge us today? Let it be done to you as you have believed. Do you know the Bible says that there's death and life in the power of the tongue? Follow me here in this, this logic. There's death and life in the power of the tongue. Why is that? I think it's because the Bible also says that faith comes from hearing. Okay, so when you speak faith-filled words, you're the first person to hear them. So if you're speaking life and speaking faith-filled words, you're actually building up belief in your life. If you're speaking negative words that are void of faith, you're the first one to hear those things, and you're going to create a faith void environment around you. Let me give you an example. I have two two-year-olds. How many of you guys have heard some parent uh, try to explain or justify how crazy their toddler's acting by using the phrase, oh, it's just terrible twos, right? Y'all heard that? Like, I, I have two, by their logic, I have two terrible two-year-olds. Of course, though, my wife and I never use that phrase in our house. We have not one time. Why? Because faith comes from hearing. And so if I speak that out over my two two-year-olds, man, they're just crazy. It's crazy, okay? We got two two-year-olds. They fight, they scream, they whine, but we never speak that. Because I, then we would be the first ones that, wow, man, life's just crazy because we got two, two terrible two-year-olds. What's, what's the point? The point is that what we believe a lot of times comes from what we're speaking, first of all, and what we believe actually becomes our experience around us. Let it be done for you as you have believed, okay? If you don't believe that Jesus can and wants to miraculously heal people today, then if you lay your hands on somebody and pray for them to be healed, you're probably not going to see a lot of healings. You probably just won't be praying for that many people, you know? Guys, this is challenging for me because I pray for people all the time to be healed and I, I don't see a lot of healings. So 
Can we let this challenge us today and say, well, it could be that God doesn't heal people anymore, so we're just going to stop praying. Or it could be that we need to rise our faith and conviction level to meet what this 99.5% historically accurate document tells us about it. Are you with me, church? Let it be done for you as you have believed. Understanding the authority of Jesus is crucial to releasing miracles. But that authority is rooted in submission. I mean, Jesus said all throughout the gospels, what? He said, I don't speak of my own authority. I speak what I hear the Father speaking. I do what I see the Father doing. His authority was rooted in submission. That's key number one. That's key number one to a life of faith, a life of faith that marvels Jesus. Key number two, I want you to flip to Mark chapter five. Okay, another quick story. I'm gonna set the stage for you and then we're just gonna, I'm gonna kind of, we'll look at the punchline together. But another familiar story, Mark chapter 5, there is a man, a ruler of a synagogue, his name's Jairus. Jairus' daughter was sick to the point of death. And so he comes to Jesus and said, Jesus, will you come and will you heal my daughter? Will you come and heal my precious little daughter? His heart, his father's heart, just crushed and broken. And Jesus says, yes, let's go. So he head, starts to head with Jairus to his house. Along the way, there's a great crowd that gathers around Jesus. And in that crowd, there was a woman who had a condition where she had been bleeding for 12 years. She had spent all of her money on doctors, and it had only gotten worse. She had heard reports about Jesus healing people. Why is that significant? Because faith comes from hearing. She had heard reports about Jesus healing people, and she goes, oh, he's passing through my neighborhood. I got to touch this guy. If I can just touch him... I'll be healed. She pushes her way through the crowd, unashamed, and she lays her hand on the edge of Jesus' garment. And the Bible says that immediately she felt healing come into her body. And Jesus immediately felt power leave his body. It stopped him in his tracks. Do you want to have the kind of faith that marvels Jesus and stops him in his tracks? It stops him in his tracks. And he turns around. He goes, who touched me? Jesus, there's 100 people around you in this crowd. What do you mean who touched? Everybody's touching you. No. Power left me. Who touched me? The woman comes forward trembling. She falls down. Keep, keep in mind, Jairus is standing right next to him the whole time going, my daughter's dying. What are we doing here? Lady, this is my miracle. Jesus, can we speed this up? My daughter, you know, Jairus is waiting. Jesus has stopped. The lady's on the ground. Jesus looks at her, and he says this amazing thing to her. He says, daughter, look at this. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Your Let it be done to you as you have believed. Your faith has made you well. Right at that moment where Jesus says this, Jairus, still standing here, a friend from his house walks up and he whispers in Jairus' ear. He says, hey man, I'm sorry. Your daughter died. Don't bother Jesus anymore. That's literally what he says. Jesus, standing right here, hears the guy say that and looks Jairus, I believe he turned and looked him dead in the eye and he said, Jairus, do not fear, only believe. I know your miracle just got interrupted, 
and your friend just came and said to stop bothering me, but I've got news for you, Jairus. What he just told you was a lie. Stop bothering Jesus. Your miracle hasn't come yet. Oh, your mir- it's past time for your miracle. Stop bothering Jesus. That was a lie. And I will tell you that in that moment, Jairus had a choice or else Jesus would not have spoken to him. He had a choice. Do I believe this lie that was just spoken in my ear by my friend to stop bothering Jesus and I give in to fear? Or am I going to believe Jesus who just told me not to be afraid? He had a choice to believe or to give in to fear. And they go to the house and Jesus raises his little daughter from the dead. When they got to the house, people laughed at Jesus. They laughed at Jairus. They mocked him because Jesus, the first thing he said was, she's not dead yet, she's just taking a nap. (laughs) And they laughed at him. And he walked inside with Jairus and his three disciples and they healed this little girl. Do not fear, but believe. Why do I tell you these two stories from Matthew 8 and Mark 5? Because I believe that these two stories give us the key to great faith that marvels Jesus and stops him in his tracks, which number one is a revelation of submission to God, which produces authority, and a revelation that we reject fear at every turn, and we believe. I want to tell you a personal story about how the authority of God trumped fear in my life and produced a miracle. You want to hear it? About three years ago, my wife and I found out that we were pregnant with our second child. A few weeks later, we had our first ultrasound and found out that we were actually pregnant with our second and third child. A couple weeks later, we learned identical twin boys would soon be joining our family. And guys, we were elated. We felt like we won the lottery, like something that never happens to somebody that you know, like happened to you, you know? We were like so pumped. These two little heartbeats on the ultrasound is amazing. The doctors also told us at that point that there are certain risks associated with identical twin pregnancies. The greatest risk being a 10% chance in identical twins of them developing a a syndrome called TTTS, which stands for twin-to-twin transfusion syndrome. Without going into too much detail, imagine that the umbilical cords of these two babies, which are, because they're identical twins, they share one placenta. If this is too much of a biology lesson for you, I apologize. But these two umbilical cords connecting one placenta, imagine that they're like two trees planted too closely together. And where their roots go underground, the blood vessels of their umbilical cords, they had actually overlapped and begun to fuse together. And so the babies were actually now transfusing blood between one another. Mostly, one baby was taking blood and nutrients from the other baby. If TTTS progresses rapidly enough, then the donor baby who's losing blood will stop developing, and the imbalance in the womb could result in preterm labor. At 23 weeks pregnant, they discovered that our twins had developed TTTS in the womb. They sent us home for a few days to see how fast it would progress. And within three days, 
Arlena was so swollen with the imbalance of the amniotic fluid that she was bound to a wheelchair. We went back in to follow up, and we, they, they discovered a rapidly progress, progressing case of TTTS that, without intervention at 23 weeks with identical twin boys would have definitely met, meant that both of our boys were going to die. So you might be thinking, okay, how can you intervene? <laughs> Aren't we talking about two babies, you know, delicately hanging in the balance in a woman's womb? Yes, it's intense. So what they do is they, they cut your wife open and they go into her womb with a laser. And medical term here, they use that laser to obliterate the blood vessels where they're overlapping on the placenta. They literally sear and sever and cauterize and try to separate the placenta in two. And the, the risks, the odds of this procedure are not a gamble that any parent ever wants to take with their children. You do not want to roll those dice. But we didn't have a choice. The, the buildup was already showing signs of pushing her into preterm labor. And so we had no choice but to try. Within three hours, within three hours, they were wheeling Arlena into an emergency room for emergency procedure to try to intervene and save our voice. <laughs> Sorry. <clears throat> Trying to suppress emotion and did it poorly, guys. Apologize. <laughs> I wish I could tell you that that night when they rolled her into the emergency room that I was like unshakable and firmly rooted in the peace that surpasses all understanding that I had no doubt that everything was going to work out and everybody was going to live. But I can't. That night was the worst night of my life. I was crippled by fear and helplessness in a way that I had never experienced before. And I, I was a total mess. I was laid out on the floor of the waiting room, which thankfully nobody else was in because it was like midnight. And I just wept. My heart was beating out of my chest. I wept my eyes out and I just wrestled with fear. I wrestled with fear. Every time that you're presented with the opportunity to fear, you're also presented, as the story just told us, Jairus, with an opportunity for faith. I was a mess, but my conviction and the authority of God did not waver that night. And we pressed in moment after moment to believe and not let fear have the upper hand. And it was a battle. For the next three to four hours, I, I worshiped, I cried out, I waited, and my friends in this church warred on behalf of our family, prayed, stood on their conviction of God's healing. We got text messages, we got prophetic words, we got voice memos. We were getting blown up by people that were crying out for God to intercede in that moment. Was I afraid? Absolutely. Did my conviction in God's goodness and authority waver? Not for a second. Did I know why this was happening or what the outcome was going to be? No, not at all. But did I know God? Yes. And did I know that his promise was that his goodness and mercy would follow me? Yes. And by his good hand, my wife and my two sons made it out of the operating room that night 
they, the doctors came out and said it was a successful procedure and the long road to recovery began. The, the fight for their lives was far from over, but during the next 76 days, we were at Texas Children's Hospital in Houston, we saw at least three miracles that stumped some of the greatest medical minds in our state and in our nation. Stumped. I mean, when the, car, when the children's cardiologist of Texas Children's Hospital walks into the room with results from an echocardiogram because there's side effects that happen to the baby's hearts and walks into the room and she's smiling and shaking her head and says, I don't know how to explain this, but this kid's heart is perfectly normal. I mean, talk about flipping over a table, you know, like, come on, Jesus. We saw miracles. We saw miracles. And we were able, Arlena was able to carry those babies till 34 weeks. She delivered them at 34 weeks by C-section, and they were both born. They weighed within one ounce of each other and were both over five pounds. And it was a miracle. So here they are. There they are, little boys. So on your left is Hudson, and on your right-hand side is Levi. They were born uh, a, little, a little over two years ago on July 6th, and here's a picture of my beautiful boys today. All right? They're amazing. They're a miracle. They're a gift from God. And this church has an inheritance in their life. Why, why do I tell this? Why do I tell these stories? Because I want us to be challenged by these words of Jesus. Let it be done for you as you have believed. Do not fear, only believe. I want us to be challenged by that because I know that Jairus, I, would, I know what it's like to have your child in jeopardy and to stand in the moment of hopelessness and to have a lie in one ear telling me to despair and stop bothering Jesus and to have Jesus look me in the eye on the other side and say, you better not fear, but believe in me. And to fight off the lie and the fear and to choose belief. Those 76 days were the hardest days of our life. We wrestled with fear every day, but we landed on the conviction of God's authority and his goodness every day. And we saw miracles happen. Where's our conviction, church? What do we believe? Now, I understand that I'm walking on some thin ice here, and I, don't worry, I'm not unaware because many of you have believed for things that have not happened yet. And so we have to address in this conversation the disappointment, the heartache, the miracle that you fought for that you haven't seen or that didn't happen or that hasn't happened yet. Our fallen world is a cosmic battleground between the darkness of sin that we let in and the light of Jesus that he brought. And there is much mystery surrounding why some miracles happen and other miracles don't. We don't claim to have all of that understanding. And when you have fought for a miracle and it hasn't happened, it is painful and disappointing and it is confusing. Arlena and I had been married for two years when we first started trying to start our family. The first month, we tried to get pregnant. Nothing happened. Second month, not pregnant. Third month, 
not pregnant. That's when we started to get worried. Something wrong with her, something wrong with me. What's going on here? All the while, friends around us, it's like people just look at each other and get pregnant, you know? It's like <laughs> babies are everywhere. <laughs> Serious. Everywhere. Month four, month five, guys, an entire year goes by. We're unable to get pregnant. An entire year goes by. And then finally, one day, two lines on that pregnancy test. We were thrilled. We ran down the street to tell Tyler and Ashley, finally, guys, we've, we waited. We, we didn't lose hope in the miracle. We're pregnant. Within three days, we miscarried. Waited another year, month after month after month. Two years and one miscarriage later, we found out we were pregnant with Caleb, our firstborn son. And guys, you've seen the picture of my family. Clearly, there's nothing wrong with us, okay? I mean, but we still don't know why. We don't know what that two years was about. We don't know why. You can cry. You can wrestle with God. You can hurt to the core of your being. And believe me, we did and she did. But you cannot allow your pain to redefine what this says about God. We must resist the temptation to let our disappointments determine our convictions. If Jesus is telling us something true and powerful, that let it be done for you as you have believed, then we cannot afford to have beliefs and convictions that we've lowered to the lowest common denominator of our bad experience or disappointment. We can't afford to have beliefs that we've lowered to our experience instead of elevated to his word. If it will be done for us as we have believed and we end up, because we went through a hard season, because we miscarried and couldn't get pregnant for two years, and then we decided, well, God's not that good and he's not that powerful. That creates a new conviction in our life, but it's a false conviction that doesn't align with truth. But if it goes, if it goes with us according to the, how we believe, then that false conviction that God's not that good and not that powerful are you with me, will actually produce an environment in our lives where it doesn't seem like God's that good or that powerful. We can't afford. We have to fight against this, church, because disappointments happen. Heartbreak happens. Painful things happen. I don't know all the reason why, but we have to fight to keep our faith and conviction and hope and expectation level here with this 99.5% historically accurate document about God and who he is and how good he is and how he's making all things new and he's working all things out for good. And if it's not good yet, he's not done yet. We have to fight. As we were, as I was preparing this week for this message, I just asked the Lord, what do you have for us as a church? What do you have for us? And I felt like he said that the faith of a mustard seed moves mountains. And I, I don't really know what that means because I've never moved a mountain with my faith. You know, I'm like, cool, that's a great scripture, but what does that mean? And I felt like he said, a little bit of conviction can move a mountain a long way. Where's our faith, church? Where's your conviction? Where are we at 
Do you believe in this? I want you to stand this morning as we respond together, have the band come up and prayer leaders, uh, life group leaders, section leaders, y'all come up here and give you an opportunity to respond to what we've heard this morning in the Word of God. A little bit of conviction can move a mountain a long way. In Luke 17, verse 5 and 6, the apostles come to Jesus and they say to him, Lord, increase our faith. And he responds, he looks at them and he says, actually, if you just had the faith of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and thrown into the sea. See, it's not the measure of your faith, okay? You see what I'm saying? The mustard seed is the tiniest of seeds, but when it takes root and it grows, it grows into the largest of trees. A little bit of conviction can move a mountain a long way. 16 years ago, I was convinced the most important thing in my life was to get to know God. That conviction produced an action. I started spending a little bit of time every day trying to get to know God. And 16 years later, that little bit of conviction has moved the mountain of my depraved life apart from Jesus into the kingdom of God as a life submitted to Christ. Are you seeing? A little bit of conviction, guys, today, you can move mountains. Where's your conviction? Where's our faith level, church? As we respond this morning, I think that there's probably a few things in the room that we need to deal with that are hindering us from this great faith that marvels Jesus and stops him dead in his tracks. I think one of them is maybe that we need a, a new revelation of his authority, which primarily means a new revelation of our submission to God. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe it's what he said to Jairus. Maybe fear has wrapped you up and something's happened and you are now a prisoner to fear in some area of your life. And just like Jairus, fear always is rooted in a lie. And so if you're wrapped up in fear, there's an invitation for you to repent this morning of your fear and get set free. We would love to pray with you. If there's disappointment or pain and that's hindering your faith, bring it before the Lord. He can handle it. Maybe you need to forgive God. He's perfect, obviously, but you know what I'm saying? Sometimes we get bitter or frustrated or angry at him, and, and there's a way in which we kind of need to forgive God for our mis-expectations or disappointment. You know my heart when I say that. He's perfect in all of his ways, but sometimes we develop an offense against him, and we actually need to release that. But lastly, I think for a lot of us, it's time to believe again for the miracle that you stopped believing it for. I don't know if you stopped believing for it 10 years ago or five years ago or, or five days ago, but time to believe again. I believe the testimony of miracles releases miracles. And maybe today, since you have heard of some of the miraculous works of God, that your faith level might rise up to pray for your own miracle again. Are you with me? Pray with me. These guys are here to pray for you, whatever you need. Lord Jesus, we just invite you to raise our faith level this morning, Lord, and to knock out any and all hindrances that might be holding us back from having convictions that line up with what your word says about you, God. 
Would you crush the obstacles that are keeping us trapped in low faith? And would you release us to walk in deep conviction and see mountains moved? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.